two years after the American Revolution began, John Adams sailed to Europe. Congress had asked Adams to be a diplomat to France, and Adams had said yes. And John Adams took his son, John Quincy, with him on the ship called the Boston. Now, this father who had left behind his wife had many fears getting on board the ship. And one of those fears was instantly validated when more than half the crew fell ill, including John and his son. To make matters worse, on February 19, 1778, the Boston spotted three sails out in the distance, three enemy ships from Britain. The Boston outran two of the ships, but the third one stayed very close. The chase stretched on for days at a time until finally they outsailed the final ship, that is, until they ran into a new problem, a terrible storm. The Boston still had all of its live ammunition still out on deck, which means that if one bolt of lightning had struck the deck, it would have exploded and all would have been killed. That storm raged for three days straight and then finally calmed down. A few weeks of peace went by, and then the Boston's crew spotted another British sail. This time, the Americans chased them and captured that warship. But after that victory, another five-day storm shook the Boston. Adams was shaken so violently that he had to hug a beam of the ship to stay upright. After they survived that second storm, in the middle of the night, the Boston encountered two more British warships that for some unknown reason didn't engage them in battle. In total, John Adams and his son faced six near-death encounters, seasickness, three engagements with enemy ships, and two separate deadly storms lasting days at a time. This means that almost two decades before John Adams became the second president of the United States, him and his son, the eventual sixth president of the United States, almost died at sea. A lot of American history would have been different if that crew would have been lost. When we read the story of the disciples and the storm on the Sea of Galilee, sometimes we talk about how scary it was. But I'm not sure if we always look at the stakes involved. The first 12 apostles of the church, the first 12 leaders who led the early movement called Christianity, all tell of the time that they almost died together at sea. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe any of what I'm talking about, you have to admit a lot of history would have been different if they had died at sea. The stakes were huge. And the fear that they had fit the situation. We're not talking about a fear of snakes. We're not talking about a fear of public speaking. We're not talking about being nervous on a first date. We are talking about the biggest fear of all, the fear of sudden death, utterly random, unforeseen tragedy. Now, if the storm had continued and the disciples in the ship would have experienced the ship, the boat breaking apart, capsizing, or flooding. These 12 men would have spent their last moments on earth drowning. This morning, we're going to talk about fear, but we're not going to talk about small fears. We're talking about the biggest fear of all, the fear of death. Now, you may have experienced this fear in your life. I think most of us have, but this past year was probably a catalyst for this fear for all of us. 
I've got a baby on the way. So this fear has struck me multiple times throughout this process. What if I die? What if I don't see it coming? What if I leave my family behind? Who's going to take care of my wife and child? This fear of death is not like any other. You can ignore it for a while, maybe if you're young, if you're able-bodied, if you're wealthy, if you're privileged, maybe you can avoid it. Maybe you think technology and medicine can maybe leave it at bay forever. I don't know how you deal with the fear of death, but I know you can't avoid death forever. And sometimes you won't see it coming. So if we can't see it coming, if we can't predict it, and we are afraid of it, what do we do with that fear. Now, I think this story, this true story from the Gospel of John helps us know what to do with that fear. But before we get into the story, I just want to give some background in the buildup to the story. Last week, we talked about how Jesus performed this miracle of feeding the 5,000. This crowd of hungry people needed food, and there was no easy way to get them food. And so this little boy offers his lunchbox to Jesus. Jesus thanks him for it, and he multiplies that lunchbox to feed 5,000 people at least. It was probably more. And because the crowd saw Jesus' power, they wanted to make him king. They thought it would be great to have a king who can feed his armies on the spot. So they wanted to force him to be a particular kind of king, but Jesus wouldn't let them. He withdrew into the mountains. He wouldn't let them define what kind of king he would be. And so he got away from the crowds. Now, in John's account of this story of the disciples going out on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples leave Jesus behind. And it's not clear if they're operating on Jesus's orders, if Jesus tells them to do this. Regardless, when evening comes, when night comes, Jesus is up in the mountains, withdrawn from the crowds, and the disciples decide to cross the sea. And perhaps like Jesus, they're trying to get away from the crowds for a second. So they get into a boat, they start across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark and Jesus wasn't with them. Now, what you've got to picture is an oval-shaped sea, and they're going from the northeastern part to the northwestern part. This was meant to be a simple boat ride. They weren't crossing the whole thing. They were just taking kind of a shortcut. But in verse 18, we read that the sea became rough and a strong wind was blowing. Other gospel authors give us a lot more detail about what was happening in the moment. Matthew tells us that the boat was battered by the waves. You can, you can almost envision them being dragged further and further away from the shore. Mark tells us that they were straining at the oars. You can picture each one of these 12 men pulling and pushing as hard as they can, fighting for their lives but getting nowhere. And... It was pitch black, so they can't even see clearly where they're headed, even if they want to get past the waves. It doesn't take a ton of imagination to see why these men are afraid. They're all alone. There's no such thing as GPS or Coast Guard. It's just 12 men against Mother Nature, against the sea, against the winds, and each one is thinking about what's going to happen next. They're going to die. Each one is thinking about their family, their wives, their sons, their daughters. They wish they had been able to say, I love you one last time. Maybe some of them are thinking about their plans that they had for the future and that those won't happen now. And maybe they're thinking that they won't even get a proper burial because their bodies will be lost at sea. We don't know what they thought. We just know that they're terrified and that fear makes sense. And then... In the midst of that fear, 
something worse happens. They see a man, unknown, unidentified man walking on the water. Remember, this isn't still crystal clear water. The waves are crashing around the boat. And this man, this unknown man is gliding along these waves undisturbed. The wind is howling around them. The disciples can barely hear each other scream over it. But this man out in the water is unfaced. Remember, this little adventure is happening in the middle of the night. Mark says the disciples thought he was a ghost. We often skip by this detail and and we don't take note of it. They don't know who is walking on the water towards them. There's no reason that they should have known who it was. We have no evidence that they should have seen this coming. And I don't care if you're a Christian or not. That would be terrifying. Your boat is being tossed around like a little stick. Twelve burly men are unable to do anything in the face of these waves. And some figure is out in the distance walking on the waves like it's pavement. You would think that you were losing your mind if you saw what they saw. But everything changes when the man speaks. He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. And I don't know if Jesus yelled over the storm, but somehow they hear his voice and they know who it belongs to. That voice belongs to Jesus. And I love what John writes about these 12 apostles in the boat. In verse 21, we read, then they wanted to take him into the boat. In other words, they did not want to take him into the boat when they didn't know who he was. They were thinking, whoever you are, we don't know how you're doing it, but please stay away from us. Just keep on walking on the water, but don't you dare get in this boat. And then they know who it is and they want to take him in. We've been in this sermon series on the miracles of Jesus, and it's obvious that each miracle shows how powerful Jesus is. He's he's powerful over sickness and death, and he can do so many things that mere human beings can't do. There's no doubt about that, but each miracle also shows that Jesus is loving. Yes, he's powerful, but he also wills our good. He turned water into wine, not to impress people, but to save the groom and his family from humiliation. He healed the official's son who was sick and about to die. He healed the invalid man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He multiplied bread and fish to feed a hungry crowd. He uses his power to save us, to feed us, to heal us. He is a provider, a doctor, a feeder, a savior. So, of course, it makes sense that when they don't know who is walking on the water, they are terrified. But when they do know who is walking on the water, they're not afraid of him because they've already been with him and they already know his character. They know that bringing him into the boat can only be good for them, and that's exactly what happens in the last verse of this story. It says, immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Remember, Matthew and Mark tell us that they are being dragged out into the sea, but Christ enters the boat and they simply reach the shore exactly where they were intending to go in the first place. We talk about the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, but what about the miracle of this boat lost at sea simply appearing safe on the shore? For some of us, 
when we hear this story, it's so comforting and encouraging in difficult times. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit and killed over 1,800 people. It did over $125 billion in damage, and my family was on the receiving end of that damage. I've got family who lives in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. My family basically is the Bible Belt, and we uh, felt the effects of Katrina. And my mom's side of the family actually refers to before and after the storm. It's a clear uh, marker in our family's history. And when that happened, my uncle and two of my cousins came to live with us for a year while things were being repaired. And my uncle wasn't a Christian, but I know that he felt deeply moved by the fact that some of his family who are Christian took him in. My two cousins came to church with us uh, each Sunday morning, and eventually they got baptized. And I, I think I can say confidently that living in the aftermath of that storm, the actual storm of Hurricane Katrina, I know my family was loved by Christ through us. But the problem is that not everybody gets that feel-good story. Anyone can relate to the idea of going through a storm in life. But sometimes, doesn't it seem like Jesus gets into someone else's boat and not yours? It seems like Jesus calms the storm in someone else's life, but not your life. It seems like Jesus helps someone else get to shore, but you're still lost at sea, wondering if your boat will last the night. It seems like Jesus picks and chooses who he helps, and you don't really know why he saved someone else from their storm, but he didn't save you from yours. I don't know why Christ saves us from some storms and not others. All I know is that all of Christ's disciples eventually died for him. Peter even died like him, being crucified upside down. So this story is not a promise that Christ will save you from each and every storm in your life. Christ didn't save his disciples from every storm in their lives. All I can say is that Christ is able to walk on waves like pavement. He is able to guide a boat safely to shore. In the Gospel of Luke, he calms a storm with just his words. He created the waters in the first place. He allows them to rage, but they are never allowed to disobey his will. And if he wants to walk on them, he will. And this is really good news for two reasons. First of all, you are not selfish for praying for Christ to save you from a storm. This is a strange lie that discourages us from prayer. We think that if we pray for ourselves, we are being selfish. Only true Christians will pray for other people and not their own needs and desires. But this lie needs to be dispelled. Life is a good gift from God. And if you pray for life, for more life, you are praying for something good. It is not wrong to ask Jesus to join you in your tiny, fragile little boats. You are asking for one who is more powerful than the storm to be with you. Christ came from heaven to earth to save us from sin and death and Satan. I don't think he will be upset if you ask to save you from a storm. Second of all, this story is good news because Christ himself did not bypass all the storms in his life. He was rejected by his own hometown. He was hated by the religious leaders of his day. 
He was abandoned by most of his disciples. And eventually he's crucified and humiliated on a cross. He may not have been lost at sea, but he died and he was buried in the grave. I don't know if you know this story, but in the middle of his arrest, his disciples try to protect him. One even draws a sword and he's ready to fight. And Jesus stops him and says, don't you know that I can ask my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, I could protect myself. I could exempt myself from death. I could bypass the cross, but I'm not. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to submit to this storm. Jesus doesn't save his disciples from all the storms of life, and he didn't even save himself. Think of all the people who go through storms in the Bible. Noah went through the flood. Israel passed through the Red Sea. Jonah was cast overboard and swallowed by the fish. Paul, I don't know if you know this, was shipwrecked, and he had to hold on to a plank of the broken down ship to swim safely to land. God doesn't exempt us from storms. Whether you have faith or not, God doesn't always save us from each and every storm in life. Inevitably, we face the great storm of death. And the really good news is that Jesus himself did not bypass the cross, but he also didn't stay in the grave. And he promises that all who die, whether they're lost at sea or buried in the ground, will one day rise again. The story about John Adams and his son is pretty amazing to me. If he and his son had died at sea, American history would look a lot different. But the story about Christ means a lot more to me. I don't know God's role in the survival of John Adams, but I think this miracle is a sign of who Jesus is. Christ's walking on the water shows us something about his identity. And I want you to stick with me for a second. Christ is, in a sense, more terrifying than the storm. When the disciples see an unknown man, an unknown figure walking on the water, they are scared, as they should be. Anyone who is more powerful than a storm, than Mother Nature herself, is more frightening than a storm. A storm can capsize a boat and kill the men inside. That's absolutely true. But Christ is more powerful than the storm. He is more terrifying than the storm because he's more powerful than the storm. But once they know it's Jesus, they're not scared anymore. That's the beauty of fearing and revering Christ. It is natural and fitting to respect something more powerful than you. When you recoil from death, you recoil from something you can't defeat. You know instinctively if it was a one-on-one -on -one match between you and death, that would not go well for you. But we revere Christ more than death because he trampled on death just like he walked on the water. Our fears in life, the biggest fear of all, is put into perspective when we have fear of the Lord. That's why the Proverbs say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Jesus once told his disciples, don't fear the one who can kill the body, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. Jesus doesn't mean 
be terrified and cower before a mean and unjust God. He means respect and honor and revere the true pecking order in life. It's true that death is more powerful than you or me, but Christ is more powerful than death. So what do we do with our fear of death? If you don't know Christ, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what you should do with your fear of death. But if you do know Christ, submit that fear of death to your reverence for Christ. In the Book of Common Prayer, there's a section on prayers to be used at sea. Uh, This just shows you how much times can change. But when we go out into the world, we're a little bit different. Some of us presume safety. We think, well, nothing bad would happen to me. The odds are so low. But even if we admit that something bad can happen, we have backups. If a car crashes, we have airbags and police and the ambulance. If we get sick, we can go to the hospital. If a tree falls, we have insurance to cover our house. We presume safety. But in other times, Christians were more aware of sudden death. This is one of the prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, O most powerful and glorious Lord God, at whose command the winds blow and lift up the waves of the sea, who stillest the rage thereof. We, thy creatures, miserable sinners, do in this our great distress cry unto thee for help. Save, Lord, or else we perish. Perhaps this year has made us realize that we can't fend off death forever. And maybe this year you felt more paralyzed by this fear than you ever have in your life. But if you're a Christian, there is good news in the midst of that fear. You know that Christ is the one who created the waters and can calm them with the word. You know that he is the one who can climb into your boat and guide it safely to shore. Christ is the one who didn't save himself from all of his own storms, but endured them and conquered them for our sake. No matter what storm comes, In your life, you never have to apologize for praying to the one who can walk on waves.